Nation, a trivia podcast for <laughs> ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at pub quiz. <laughs> We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. <laughs> I, I don't didn't realize know what the, I don't know what bit I'm doing right now, but you're doing uh, like a Dolly Parton, yeehaw, yeah, everybody. like yeah, you're doing like an Annie Get Your Gun situation. Yeah, you're in a mood. You're in a mood like a country mood. Well, uh, I, I don't throw know. You off too much. This is this. I'm not. I can't make much of a transition here um, <laughs> from from Annie Get Your Julia, but. Uh, I will say that we have been getting a lot of very nice feedback from uh, my senses episode, from my episode about hearing. Yes. Um, especially from scientists, which is extremely gratifying. <laughs> uh, and in fact, uh, one of our uh, one of our uh, listeners is going to be providing some extra information about like neurology and the senses and that kind of thing. So Ooh, keep sweet. an eye out for that in the future. So I decided, you know what? <laughs> If it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know what I'm saying? So today is an episode I'm calling You've Got Great Taste. Yummy, yummy, yummy. Delightful. Yes. So this is an episode all about taste and the gustatory system, which sounds appetizing. Uh, but anyway, your whole just as, an, just as an FYI, your whole sense of taste is officially known as the gustatory system. And uh, the gustatory cortex in the brain is responsible for the perception of taste. Also, P.S., just right off the top, about 80 to 90% of what you taste is actually the olfactory system helping out your taste buds. So when, uh, you know, you hear this a lot, especially lately with the pandemic, like if you lose your sense of smell, usually your sense of taste pretty much goes with it. Um, And we'll talk about uh, what what your strictly your sense of taste is in a minute. So the gustatory system allows animals to distinguish between safe and harmful food and to gauge food's nutritional value. So the tongue uh, is covered with thousands of small bumps called papillae, which are visible to the naked eye. And within each papilla, hundreds of taste buds. So the exception to this are the filiform papillae that do not contain taste buds. So these are just like, just bumps. Just that bumps. don't have taste bumps. Well, here's the thing. The tongue also aids not only in taste and also in talking, which is something that you it's weird to think about if you think about it too much. Don't think about it too much. Uh, but the tongue aids in cleaning the teeth. Like just the act of like talking it and being eating there. and all of that stuff and it being there because, you know, your tongue is always moving you, you, there's not really like a comfortable place to put your tongue, if you think about it. <laughs> there's no like slot for your tongue to go into. Um, it's a, it's cleaning your teeth. So that's gross and weird. Um, and I can see from your face that you're thinking about it. Now all of you are thinking about it. So congratulations. You know what else I heard today that made me very uncomfortable? What's that? Your bones are always wet. Ew! <laughs> Ew! I hate that! I hate that. <laughs> Julia. Oh, my God. I'll be thinking about how my tongue is never in a comfortable place. <laughs> and I'm gonna never going to stop thinking about how my boat. This is going to be what I whisper on my deathbed. All my sons and daughters are going to gather around me. And I'm going to say, did you know your bones are always wet? And then <laughs> that's me dying. <laughs> 
And then my tongue hangs up because there's not a comfortable place for my tongue to go when I die. Anyway, <laughs> so you have a regular ass taste bud, you know, bumps. Papilla, and then you have just like cleaning you know, scrubby ones. <laughs> you got the scrubs. Utilitarian. You, you got the lati- utilitarian scrubby guys. So, um, there are between 2,000 and 5,000 taste buds that are located on the back and front of the tongue. Um, and there are others on the roof, sides, and back of the mouth and in the throat. I, I don't care for this. Yeah, yeah. So the interesting thing about your tongue, I'm going to, I'll get all the tongue stuff out of the way first. Okay. okay. So the anterior portion of your tongue is the front part of your tongue. That is the part that's in your mouth right now. Like when you stick out your tongue, ah, like that, like Megan the Stallion does. Ah, that is the anterior portion of your tongue. The posterior portion of your tongue is in your throat. Mm-hmm. That's the part that's like attached to your neck muscles. Ugh. Yeah. And so there's... It's there's, also always wet. <laughs> it's also always wet. It's also always... Everything's always so wet. So... So that's, there are two parts to your tongue. Your tongue is not just the part that you see and feel. There's also a good part of it in your throat, which is gross. So anyway, each taste bud contains 50 to 100 taste receptor cells. And so when you taste things, digestive enzymes and saliva begin to dissolve food into base chemicals that are washed over the papier and detected as tastes by the taste buds. What if menus described your, <laughs> described the food like that? What? Ah, uh, yes. This chocolate mousse, uh, your saliva is going to break it down into base and acidic <laughs> yes. uh, and yeah. elements. And then uh, you'll notice the sweetness <laughs> on your taste buds. These are chemoreceptors. Anyway. Yeah, that'd be that'd be really good. That would be very appetizing. Um, taste is a form of chemoreception, as I mentioned before, uh, which occurs in the specialized taste receptors in the mouth. So to date, there are five different types of taste receptors. Um, so there are, well, that, that are recognized, I should say, that are recognized by scientists. Mm -hmm. So it's salt, sweet, sour, bitter, and umami. And if you remember when you were like a kid, there was like the tongue map, Mm -hmm. like sweet is on the sides and salt is on the tip. That's, that's a lie that we were lied to. They lied about a lot of things to us. They lied about a lot of things to us. Yeah. Um, but those taste receptors are all over your tongue. There might be some like gathered more in these areas that are like sweet receptors, but um, there's some there's some uh, studies that prove that maybe not every taste bud is just like a sweet one. You know, mm-hmm. like they can they can uh, these neurons can respond to more than one kind of stimulus. Mm-hmm. So you can they can each like respond to each individual tastent which is what the scientific term for like a tasty thing. Um, So each type of receptor has a different manner of sensory transduction or detecting the presence of a certain compound and starting this kind of action potential, which alerts the brain. So it's like, like we talked about with hearing, um, there are these neurons that kind of get activated when certain things activate Mm -hmm. them and then it transmits that information to the brain. So it's the same thing with tasting. So researchers believe that the brain interprets complex tastes by examining patterns from a large set of neuron responses, and this enables the body to make a, like, keep or spit out decision. <laughs> and this, <Yeah>. this, <laughs> yeah, like, uh, um, and this happens when there is more than one, like, flavor happening in your mouth. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if something is, like, overwhelmingly bitter, like, you know, but if there's something, like, 
off about something, you'll be able, to, your brain will be able to perceive that kind of nuance. Yeah, it's funny when uh, Ellie's Ellie's starting to eat solid foods now, mm-hmm. and whenever we give her like a new thing, sometimes she'll give us like the full tongue, like. Bleh! Why did you feed yeah. me this? And you're like, what are you talking about? You love this. This is food. delicious. But if it's yeah. like a new, you know, a new flavor combination or something, mm-hmm. we notice that she that she'll give us this like, why did you do this to me? <laughs> With her like whole tongue. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's a very tongue forward baby. I have noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, you may know about this. Uh, I know I'm very familiar with this. Serotonin is thought to act as an intermediary hormone, which communicates with taste cells within a taste bud, and it mediates the signals being sent to the brain. So this is basically like when your brain is like, ooh, this is delicious. So your brain also gives you like a nice little spurt of serotonin that's like, ooh, you should eat more of this. Mm -hmm. It's a biological imperative um, to make sure that you're getting enough calories. All all sugar, chocolate, baked goods. Yeah. Yeah. Fried food. That's me. So the basic taste modalities contribute only partially to the sensation and flavor of food in the mouth. So it's not just the taste buds that give you like the full like gamut. Other factors include smell, as mentioned before, uh, texture, which is detected through a variety of mechanoreceptors, which we'll talk about in a second, Uh, muscle nerves, etc. Temperature, which is detected by thermoreceptors Um, and coolness, such as like of menthol or peppermint. And hotness, which is also known as pungency, through this idea of uh, chemostasis, um, which we'll talk about in a second. So as of the early 20th century, Western physiologists and psychologists believe that there were four basic tastes, sweetness, sourness, saltiness, and bitterness. And at the time, savoriness, often known by its Japanese term umami, which translates to deliciousness, uh, was not identified, but now a large number of authorities recognize it as the fifth Mm -hmm. taste. So one study found that both salt and sour taste mechanisms detect in different ways the presence of sodium chloride, which is just salt in the mouth. Um, However, acids are also detected and perceived as sour. Um, Citric acid is a common uh, additive to foods to kind of give it like that instant like lemon quality or citrus quality. Um, And it's like it's a cheap compound additive and it just like instantly reads in the mouth as like sour. Mm -hmm. Um, the detection of salt is important to many organisms, but specifically mammals, as it serves a critical role in ion and water homeostasis in the body. So it's specifically needed in the mammalian kidney as a compound which helps reuptake of water in the blood. And because of this, we like salt. Salt, you know, is delicious to us because we need it so badly. And so it's another a biological imperative to want us to eat as much salt as possible so that we can stay hydrated. <clears throat> um other ions of the alkali metals group also taste salty. So things that are similar enough to sodium chloride tend to taste salty to us, but the farther away you get from sodium, the less salty the sensation is in your oh, mouth. Interesting. Yeah. So as you may know, sour and salt tastes can be pleasant in small quantities, but in larger quantities become more and more unpleasant to taste. And, uh, for sour, this is presumably because uh, sour can signal underripe fruit or rotten meat and other spoiled foods, which can be dangerous to the body because of bacteria that grow in these foods. Um, additionally, sour taste signals acids, which can cause serious tissue damage Oof. if you eat uh, something especially acidic. Um, also, sweet taste signals the presence of carbohydrates in a solution. Since carbohydrates have a very high calorie count, they are desirable to the human body, which evolved to seek out the highest calorie intake foods. 
Um, they're used as direct energy and storage of energy. So this, these are sugars and glycogen, uh, respect, respectively. And however, there are many non-carbohydrate molecules that trigger a sweet response, leading to the development of many artificial sweeteners, including saccharin, sucralose, and aspartame. Um, and they don't know why these substances activate the sweet receptors on the tongue and Ooh, what adaptational significance this has. They don't know why we get it, we taste it as sweet, but uh, the uh, alternative sweetener uh, you know, industry has really taken that and ran with it. <laughs> Um, bitterness is one of the most sensitive of the taste. You can taste bitterness in, like, dissolved in gallons and gallons and gallons of yeah. water. Because that's and, poison, right? Yeah, because that's poison. Again, another biological thing where it's like, if, if something is poisonous, it's going to be bitter. So we need to be able to detect bitterness at, like, even the smallest concentrations. Mm-hmm. And so when s- taste scientists, tasteologists, I'm going to call them tasteologists. Tongmen. Tongmen. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Tongue people. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yes, you're right. Tongue persons. When tongue persons, <laughs> tongue, tongue doctors, um, when they are testing sensitivity to taste, there's usually like, um, like a control. So like this thing is one and then mm-hmm. anything above it is like two, three, four, that mm-hmm. kind of thing or below it. So for bitterness, it's quinine. Quinine is the one like okay. the the control factor for bitterness just as an fyi hmm. um so you know obviously not everybody loves bitterness like most people hate bitterness it's it's sometimes desirable and it's usually intentionally added via various bittering agents um you know you think about tonic water quinine is in that and people like gin and tonics you know bitter beer you know bitters that are added to cocktails that kind of thing Um, Bitterness is of interest to those who study evolution as well as various health researchers since a large number of natural bitter compounds are known to be toxic, as we talked about. The ability to detect uh, bitter tasting toxic compounds at low thresholds is considered to provide an important protective function. Plant leaves often contain toxic compounds and among leaf eating primates, there is a tendency to prefer immature leaves, which tend to be higher in protein and lower in fiber and poisons than mature leaves. Um, so amongst humans, various food processing techniques are used worldwide to detoxify otherwise inedible foods and make them palatable. Hmm. Um, furthermore, the use of fire, changes in diet, and avoidance of toxins has led to neutral evolution in human bitter sensitivity. So basically, we have like evolved out of the need of disliking bitterness. Okay. So this has allowed several loss of function mutations that has led to a reduced sensory capacity towards bitterness in humans when compared to other species. So we are we are now like enjoying bitterness to a certain extent. And, you right. know, you can kind of see that with like foods. And as I mentioned before, yeah, like I definitely cocktails and beer. think of it a lot with cocktails. Yes, absolutely. Like bitter um, orange is a flavor I really enjoy. Mm-hmm, yeah. Grapefruit. Mm-hmm. I love grapefruit. Yeah. Sometimes you need that little like, Pop. you know. That pop. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about umami. Umami. <laughs> Sorry. I feel it's like- okay. No, it's okay. It's, it was good. I liked it. So umami was identified by Japanese chemist uh, Kikune Ikeda, um, and that signals the presence of the amino acid L-glutamate, and that triggers a pleasurable response and thus encourages the intakes of peptides and proteins. So this is like your body telling you, ooh, there's protein in this. Mm-mm-mm. Num, num, num. Munch down on that. 
Uh, so the amino acids and proteins are used in the body to build muscles and organs, transport molecules, hemoglobin, antibodies, and the organic catalysts known as enzymes. So these are all critical, and so it's important to have a steady supply of amino acids. And so, hence, we love the taste of umami. Um, so uh, umami can be tasted in cheese or like soy sauce. Mm-hmm. It's um, the word umami is a loan word from the Japanese, meaning, as I mentioned before, good flavor, or good taste. It's also considered fundamental to many East Asian cuisines. And uh, also the Roman, um, uh, what's I'm looking for? Condiment. The Roman condiment uh, garum, which was a fermented fish sauce, oh. was said to be def- like an addition of umami, an umami condiment for Roman cuisine. Um, it was first studied in 1907 by Ikeda isolating dashi taste, which is mm. a, a kind of um, Japanese broth, Yeah, um, which he uh, identified as the chemical monosodium glutamate, or MSG. So MSG is a sodium salt that produces a strong savory taste, especially combined with foods rich in nucleotides, such as meats, fish, nuts, and mushrooms. Now, contrary to popular belief, MSG is found naturally in real foods like tomatoes and cheese, so it's not some lab-grown chemical, and it's perfectly safe to consume. Mm -hmm. So this whole idea of, like, MSG is bad for you, MSG is, like, you know, in cheap, shitty Chinese food... Um, you know, you can get sick from it. It's a chemical, like all this stuff. This kind of came from uh, a letter. So in April of 1968, a man named Dr. Robert Homan Kwok wrote a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine coining the term Chinese restaurant syndrome. And in this letter, he suggested several possible causes before he nominated MSG for his symptoms. And so the letter was initially met with like satirical responses. People were kind of joking off of it. Mm -hmm. Um, There was some racist language Mm -hmm. within the medical community. It was like all a big joke. And some people claim that when this kind of leaked into the media, the jokes weren't really parsed as jokes. And they were instead taken seriously, leading to a lot of people believing that Chinese restaurant syndrome was something that like a medical doctor like Mm -hmm. was was saying was a real thing. So in January of 2018, a man named Dr. Howard Steele claimed that the letter was actually a prank submission by him under the pseudonym of Ho Man Kwok. Wow. So So he let this thing fester for more than 40 years? Yep. Oh, it gets worse. So there's, there's another twist. So... However, it turned out that there was a Dr. Robert Homan Kwok who worked at the National Biomedical Research Foundation. Both names Steele claimed to have invented. Okay. Kwok's children, his colleague at the Research Foundation, and the son of his boss there confirmed that Dr. Robert Homan Kwok, who had died in 2014, wrote this letter. Okay. But after hearing about like this whole like Kwok's family and his, you know, his boss and all these people. Dr. Howard Steele's daughter, Anna, said that this was just one of the last pranks by her late father. He was just like double crossing everybody again. That's so weird. Isn't that the weirdest thing? Like, why would you continue that? You you weirdo. Anyway, guys, MSG is not bad for you. It's a natural thing. It's just gotten a bad rap because racism. Anyway, (laughs) and also this dum-dum, whatever. So let's talk about things that are tastes, but not quite officially scientifically tastes. Mm-hmm. So the tongue can also feel other sensations not generally included in the basic tastes. Mm-hmm. So these are 
largely detected by uh, somatosensory sense system. So in humans, the sense of taste is conveyed via three of the 12 cranial nerves. So the facial nerve carries taste sensations from the front two thirds of the tongue. So that anterior part, uh, the glossopharyngeal nerve carries taste sensations from the back. Mm-hmm. Um, while a branch of the vagus nerve carries some taste sensations from the back of the oral cavity. So the back of your throat, basically. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> pungency or heat, uh, thy, the trigeminal nerve uh, provides information concerning the general texture of food as well as the taste-related sensations of peppery or hot from spices. Uh, pungency, also known as picancy or hotness, has traditionally been considered a sixth basic taste. And some of us are very sensitive, okay? <laughs> She's talking about herself. I'm, I should... I should Correct. I am a it sounds real, like she's making fun of me, but she's I making am fun a of herself. Real chicken baby when it comes to peppery, spicy stuff. Yes, she thinks ketchup is too hot. Like hot mustard and wasabi and horseradish. Okay, but anything so, that's a pepper, yeah, like black so we'll, pepper or a spicy pepper, mm-hmm. anything like that, just kills me. Yeah, we'll talk about that. We'll talk okay. about what the difference between those things. So. Substances such as ethanol and capsaicin cause a burning sensation by inducing a tri- trigeminal nerve reaction together with normal taste reception. So some such plant-derived compounds that provide the sensation are capsaicin from chili peppers, piperine from black pepper, gingerol from ginger root, and allyl isothiocyanate from horseradish. Ooh, okay. Um, so uh, pepper, like the piperine and the capsaicin, that provides like a heat like like your mouth is burning yes. quality to it mm-hmm. while the horseradish and the ginger all like ginger root that goes like it it feels like it goes up until your nasal passages mm. and while it's still you still get like that sensation of heat it's kind of like a cool heat i guess you could call it like it clears your nasal passages and it's something that you experience more in like more above your mouth okay. than like in your mouth and so because these two different kinds of heat react in your brain like slightly differently that might be why like you can handle horseradish no problem but you can't handle like capsaicin like yes like peppery heat yes yeah so it's one of those things so maybe i shouldn't just maybe i don't need to apologize for it maybe i can just be like actually i'm more sensitive to capsaicin it's because my (laughs) tongue is refined yeah yeah your tongue is refined okay my tongue has evolved (laughs) yeah yeah. oh come on you're just a white girl let's be honest uh (laughs) i mean i am too don't get me wrong. wrong yeah I mean, I really like spicy food, but that was something that I, that was like an acquired taste for me. Like up until probably my twenties, I could not handle any kind of heat. I hated hot, mm-hmm. hot food. It was just something that I just, I don't know. It's not like I, it make I make it sound like because I trained our my parents body. made us a lot of spaghetti and hamburger helper yes. and mm-hmm. like cabbage rolls. Like, yeah, we didn't have money to go out to dinner. We, Are you kidding me? Yeah. Spicy food to us was like an El Paso taco kit at home yeah you know exactly exactly yeah so it wasn't until like I started like exploring different cuisines when I started like eating hotter foods and like adapting to hotter foods I I would say Mm -hmm. like for me Mm -hmm. but it's a personal preference like whatever man don't let anybody shame you for what you eat like who cares life is too short I mean I'm not gonna lie sometimes I I shame a picky an adult picky eater and um 
I'm going on record as saying that. If you're an adult <laughs> and you only eat chicken nuggets and macaroni and cheese <laughs> and no well, vegetables or fruit of any kind, something true, needs to be re-examined. Yeah. Well, oh, we'll talk about that in a second. We'll talk about that in a second. So anyway, back to spicy food. So this piquant or hot or spicy sensation um, play an important role in a diverse range of cuisines around the world. So especially in equatorial and subtropical climates, such as Ethiopian, Hungarian, Indian, Korean, Indonesian, Lao, Mexican, New Mexican, South- Southwest Chinese, including Sichuan, Vietnamese, and Thai cuisines. So this particular sensation, this like hot sensation, which is called chemistesis, is not a taste in the technical sense because the sensation doesn't arise from the taste buds. And it's a different set of nerve fibers that carry it to the brain. So foods like chili peppers activate nerve fibers directly and the sensation interpreted as hot results from the stimulation of somatosensory or pain temperature fibers on the tongue. So your body and your brain interpret it as pain, heat, hot, painful, hot. Yeah. So, and also many parts of the body with exposed membranes, but no taste centers, such as the nasal cavity under the fingernails, like your eyeballs or a wound, they produce a similar sensation of heat when exposed to hotness agents. So when you're chopping chili peppers, you're not supposed to touch your eyes mm-hmm. because it's near a mucous membrane and you could really burn yourself bad. So on the other end of the spectrum is coolness. So taste the some, sensation. Taste the sensation. So this is also something it activates cold uh, trigeminal receptors, even when these things are not actually like temperature cold. Um, this fresh or minty sensation can be tasted in peppermint, spearmint, and is triggered by substances such as menthol, anethol, ethanol, and camphor. Um, it is caused, again, much like the hotness, caused by an activation of the same mechanism that signals cold, but it's only a perceived phenomenon. It's not actually cold, as you well know. Also, uh, numbness. So uh, both Chinese and Batak Toba cooking include the idea of ma or mati rasa, which is a tingling numbness caused by spices such as the Sichuan pepper. Um, The cuisines of Sichuan province in China and the Indonesian province of North Sumatra often combine this with chili pepper to produce a mala or numbing and hot flavor. So if you eat Sichuan cooking, you'll notice that it has hotness, but also this weird numbness. A numbing and hotness. Uh, a numbing and hotness, yes. I don't, I, but I like my tongue. I don't yeah, and your numb. tongue is still there. Your tongue is still there. It's, it's just like, it's just a little numb. That's all. Some people like it. I mean, I don't think I've eaten enough Sichuan um, uh, cuisine to like remember what that's like, but I can imagine it, I guess. N- unclear. Um, but some people like it. So there's that. Um, there's also astringency. So Mm -hmm. some foods, such as unripe fruit, um, contain tannins or calcium oxalate, which causes an astringent or puckering sensation of the mucous membrane of the mouth. Mm -hmm. So examples include tea, red wine, rhubarb, etc. Less exact terms for the astringent sensation are dry, rough, harsh, especially for wine, Mm -hmm. tart, which is akin to sourness, rubbery, hard, or styptic. Mm. Um, so when referring to wine, dry is the opposite of sweet and does not refer to astringency. So astringency right. is this idea of like, ooh, a lot of tannins in this red one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it dries you can, out your um, mouth. Uh, quick, uh, quick tip. You can gauge the acidity of a wine it by like taking a sip of it and then 
swallowing and then closing your mouth and kind of tipping your mouth forward. And if you get a lot of saliva on your tongue, like in your mouth mm-hmm. after that one sip, then it is a very acidic wine. So if you're somebody that feels like you're very sensitive to acids, you might want to pop a Tums before you go to bed that night. Mm-hmm. Um because the your tongue is creating that saliva in order to wash away the perceived acidity of yeah. that level of wine. Exactly. The perceived dryness that's that's coming through. Yeah. Um, also in the Indian Ayurvedic tradition, one of the six tastes is astringency, also known as kasaya. So it's it's a presumably um, you know, it's an important aspect mm-hmm. of taste. Also, metallicness is a taste. Yes. Uh, it can be caused by food or drink, certain medicines, or your dental fillings. Um, it's just, <laughs> Oh, no. People don't, yeah. yeah mm, it's bad. Um, the metallic taste may be caused by uh, galvanic reactions in the mouth. That's what happens with your dental fillings. Mm-hmm. Um, the dissimilar metals used may produce a, um, a measurable current in your mouth, which is where you get that metallic taste. It's because your saliva is providing... Yeah, the, like the mechanism by which like a, sh- a small current is running through your mouth, which is like very and scary. The, to think and that's about. also why in the olden days, so many uh, royals died of or had effects of um, metal poisoning was because their silver, you know, they, their silverware wasn't necessarily, you know, silverware. It was made of mm-hmm. gold or different metals. Yeah. And basically every time that they took a bite off of their golden spoon, their, you know, their saliva was mixing with it or whatever. And it was, yeah. it was slowly getting into their system that way. And so That's a lot of them so had freaky. like heavy metal poisonings. When Man, you-, you could die so easily. Oh, <laughs> back yeah. Like, it's amazing we survived as a species. It's crazy. Uh, metallic, also, to me, I am a person that cannot taste cilantro. I think it is disgusting. Yeah. And to me, it tastes like Same. soap and metal shavings. Yeah, it's it's unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a genetic thing, too, which is interesting. Um, also, some artificial sweeteners are perceived to have a metallic taste. Mm-hmm. I d- dislike aspartame and all of that stuff because it does have, like, a weird metallic aftertaste. Uh, many people consider blood to have a metallic taste. Sure. Yeah. Um, a uh, metallic taste in the mouth is also a symptom of various medical conditions, in which case it may be classified under the symptoms um, dysgeusia or parajusia, referring to distortions of the sense of taste. And this can be caused by medication and various kinds of chemotherapy, as a matter of fact, um, as well as uh, occupational hazards, such as working with pesticides. Or you're being slowly poisoned by your spouse. Or or you're being slowly poisoned by your spouse, which is definitely a possibility. Um, <laughs> I mean, not for us, but, you know, for yeah. others. Uh, also, fat taste. Um, it is it is known as fat taste. Apparently, proposed alternate names to fat taste include oleojustice and pinjuice. I don't um, like although, pinjuice. Yeah, no. although these terms are not widely accepted, obviously, because they're dumb. Um, but there is apparently a debate over whether we can truly taste fats. Um, and supporters of our ability to taste free fatty acids have based the argument on a few main points. So there is an evolutionary advantage to oral fat detection. Um, a potential fat receptor has been located on taste bud cells. Uh, fatty acids evoke specific responses that activate uh, gustatory neurons, similar to other currently accepted tastes. And there is a physiological response to the presence of fat in the mouth. So you're like, mm-mm-mm, so fatty, or ugh, fatty. Uh, The main form of fat that is commonly ingested is triglycerides, which are composed of three fatty acids bound together. 
And uh, in this state, triglycerides are able to give fatty foods unique textures that are often described as creamy. So that's why, you know, like triglycerides are usually added. Yeah. Triglycerides are sometimes added to like fast foods or processed foods or whatever because it tastes more delicious and fattier when maybe the presence of fat or like real, I guess, fat isn't present. Yeah, I guess I assume that that's more of a texture thing, but... Yeah, it's it's kind of up for debate whether that's considered a texture or like a, an actual taste. And it's only during ingestion that the fatty acids that make up triglycerides are hydrolyzed into fatty acids mm-hmm. via this process. So the taste is commonly related to other more negative tastes, such as bitter and sour during due to how unpleasant the taste is for humans. You know, think about like chewing on the fat of a, yeah. you know, a piece of meat. It's just like unpleasant. Yeah. But yeah, um, buttercream frosting. Oh, yeah, that's delicious. <laughs> I mean, you know, low concentrations of this create like an overall better flavor in foods, you know, but too much and it it's like inedible, basically. So it's one of those things that you have to kind of like walk the line. <laughs> um, also, heartiness, also known as kukumi. Uh, it describes compounds and foods that do not have their own taste, but enhance the characteristics when combined. So alongside the five basic tastes of sweet, sour, salt, bitter, and savory, kukumi has been described as something that may enhance the other five tastes by magnifying and lengthening the other tastes or mouthfulness. So garlic is a common ingredient to add flavor used to help divine the characteristic kukumi flavor. So garlic has its own taste. So it's kind of not a great example, (laughs) but garlic is used to enhance the other flavors. How about like... Um, when you make a sweet dessert, it's always nice to add a pinch of salt because then it helps to enhance yes. the sweet. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or if you're making a chocolate dessert, <laughs> you include a pinch of a like espresso of- powder or something yes. because the coffee mm-hmm. offsets the chocolate and makes it bolder and you don't mm-hmm. really even taste the coffee in it then. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So this comes so hungry, more of like, guys. I know. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. This is a bad thing to do for you I'm so sorry um so yeah this concept of kukumi is more of um it's not a flavor in and of itself or a taste in and of itself but something that enhances other flavors mm-hmm. um I'm going to talk like very briefly about super tasters yeah so a super taster is a person whose sense of taste is significantly more sensitive than most and the cause of this heightened response is likely at least partially due to an increased number of these of taste buds in the mouth what like these papilla that are in the mouth. <laughs> extra so bumpy stu- tongues. Extra bumpy, just super bumpy tongues. So studies have shown that super tasters require less fat and sugar in their food to get the same satisfying effects. Uh, however, contrary to what you might think, these people actually tend to consume more salt than most people. Hmm. And this is due to their heightened sense of the taste of bitterness and the presence of salt drowns, kind of drowns out the taste of bitterness. Okay. Um, and researchers use two synthetic substances, uh, phenyltheocarbamide, or PTC, and 6N-propylthioracyl, prop, to study the genetics of bitter perception. And these two substances taste bitter to some people, but are virtually tasteless to others. So super tasters, if they taste these two compounds, they're like impossible to taste. Like they're just overwhelming. It's just so super, super bitter. Yeah. So contrary to what you might think, a super taster is probably someone you know who is a super picky eater because they don't need as much like flavor in their food Mm, to taste like, okay, this is delicious. 
So they, and because things that have a lot of flavors in them or have uh, strong flavors or like unique flavor pairings and that kind of thing, they cannot take and cannot handle. It grosses them out. It's super overwhelming. They taste nothing but bitterness. So picky eaters might be and probably are super tasters. So you think of like the idea of... Yeah, the idea of super taster, you think it's someone like, oh, somebody who's like, you, know, you can taste gourmand. a wine and be like, that's from 1975, yes. like, it was in this region, like, that kind of thing. A super taster is actually somebody who probably only eats chicken nuggets. <laughs> yeah, I remember I bought a, I bought one of those kits to see if we were super yes. tasters, because I was like, mm-hmm. oh, we're so good at, like, drinking wine and figuring mm-hmm. out stuff. We maybe were super tasters. And then, like, I was, like, very disappointed to be like, no, I'm normal. But <laughs> no, but you should be glad. Maybe I'm a good smeller. You might be a good smeller. That's also something that's that's definitely possible. The the uh, Teglafero women have very strong noses. Um, I can I can tell when Steve is sick if he's sitting next to me on the couch. Uh, I can smell mm-hmm. the cold on him, mm-hmm. and I say you're getting sick. And usually, you're right. He's getting sick. And uh, I when people ask me like, what do you smell? And I say, oh, they smell like blood, and that freaks people out. <laughs> but it's a metallic smell from like their body and their it's like um like almost like a musty sweaty that is like not not their normal smell to me no no it's definitely not normal but yeah you're getting a cold i'll tell steve you're getting a cold be like oh man oh man i didn't know that and that's (laughs) that's his real voice too guys yeah that's exactly what he sounds like um and finally my last little like tidbit of info um, in 2010, researchers found bitter taste receptors in lung tissue. So this causes airways to relax when a bitter substance is encountered. So they believe that this mechanism is evolutionarily adaptive because it helps clear lung infections, but could also be exploited to treat asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD. That's crazy. Isn't that the weirdest thing you've ever heard? I was like, oh my God, that's so fascinating. So... Um, so yeah, so that was that was my you know very brief but interesting thing on uh, the tongue and and taste. Did you know that your outside bones are also always wet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your outside bone, outside bones, outside bones. Never forget your teeth, the outside bones. I've been watching. Um, <laughs> I've been watching uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt again while I'm on the treadmill, and uh, one I just that show's so good, and two. Um, I think my favorite line of like season two is when Jacqueline is talking about how she doesn't want to have her kid Buckley in the house when she's having like a dress fitting. And she's like, um, she's like, he's sending his meanest gaze over. If my crotch fruit is here, they'll know I'm a moo. And just, <laughs> it's just, so, it's just so friggin' funny. Anyway. Okay. <clears throat> so my quiz today is all about crotch fruit. My quiz today is all about crotch fruit. It's all about babies. Um, anyway, no, 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 no. My quiz today is called You've Got Great Taste, a quiz on famous restaurants and celebrity chefs. Yes. Yes. I knew you'd like this. Okay. Question number one. This real life restaurant in Connecticut became the setting for and title of a 1988 romantic comedy and a fictional musical in 30 Rock. The movie also launched the career of a certain America sweetheart with a big smile. What is this magical restaurant? Question number two. 
This Austrian-American chef has been a celebrity since the early 80s thanks to his hit restaurant Spago in L.A. and his cookbook, Modern French Cooking for the American Kitchen. Who is this Shakespearean chef? Question number three. This fancy restaurant with the odd name, you actually can't get your sheets cleaned there, was named the best restaurant in the world in 2003 and 2004 and has been rated three stars by Michelin every year since 2007. Of course, it's in Napa. What is the name of this restaurant, which was begun by chef Tom Keller? Question number four. This celebrity chef has been a mainstay of the Food Network for a while, serving as a judge on many competition shows like Chopped and The Taste and hosting his own PBS travel cooking show, No Passport Required. He's also the head chef of Red Rooster in Harlem. Who is this Ethiopian Swedish chef? Question number five. When in New Orleans, you might want to stop by this beautiful restaurant that's been around and open since the Civil War. Yes, you heard that right. It's open 24-7 and has been since 1862. Make sure you get some chicory coffee and a nice round of beignets. What historic restaurant am I talking about? Question number six. Is she a chef? Well, no, not really, but you can call her a semi-chef, I guess. Who is this polarizing celebrity chef who had a TV show where she made things that were not quite homemade? Here's a hint. She was in a long-term relationship with our governor. Question number seven. This New York City sandwich shop is best known for their sky-high corned beef and pastrami sandwiches, but was also the location of an infamous lunch scene in When Harry Met Sally. What is the name of this deli where you wouldn't find a feline? Question number eight. Another celebrity chef who gets a lot of flack. This cool guy is arguably the face of the Food Network, and the New York Times said he brought, quote, an element of rowdy mass market culture to American food television. Anthony Bourdain hated him. Put some more gel in your hair and tell me who this celebrity chef is. Question number nine. I'm warning you ahead of time. It's a Philadelphia question. What are the names of the two rival cheesesteak outposts in Philly that also happen to be across the street from each other? And finally, question number 10. This infamous L.A. sushi restaurant for a long time was the place to go if you wanted to see and be seen. Named after the first name of Japanese celebrity chef, it's also co-owned by Robert De Niro. What is this swanky celebrity restaurant? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be back with your answers. I felt so good until question 10. Oh, okay. Uh, I was like, 
<laughs> I'm so cocky. <laughs> I could do this quiz with my eyes closed and my hand behind my back. Because literally, besides television, my favorite topic is food. <laughs> As if you couldn't tell from me talking interrupting you throughout this episode <laughs> it's okay it's okay no think about i i'm going to give you um think about like all of the celebrity sightings that you read about in like 2005 to like 2010 like all the stuff that you saw in like us magazine mm-hmm. and like all that stuff so just think about that okay yep. you, it's at the end so you got some time yeah all right question number one this real life restaurant in connecticut became the setting for and the title of a 1988 romantic comedy and a fictional musical in 30 rock the movie also launched the career of a certain america sweetheart with a big smile what is this magical restaurant that's mystic pizza it is mystic pizza and then i had to go back and watch the 30 rock clip where jenna is in the mystic pizza musical and then she gains she eats like 12 pieces of pizza yeah. a night or something like that it's like she's like 145 pieces of pizza a week oh it's so good all right <clears throat> question number two this austrian-american chef has been a celebrity since the early 80s thanks to his hit restaurant spago in la and his cookbook modern french cooking for the american kitchen who is this shakespearean chef it is Wolfgang Puck. It is Wolfgang Puck. He has six cookbooks and 50 restaurants around the world, including 11 Spagos alone. He's a multimillionaire. It's crazy. All right. Question number three. This fancy restaurant with the odd name, you actually can't get your sheets cleaned there, was named the best restaurant in the world in 2003 and 2004 and has been rated three stars by Michelin every year since 2007. Of course, it's in Napa. What is the name of this restaurant, which was begun by Chef Tom Keller? That's the French Laundry. It is the French That's Laundry. That's also on my bucket list. Yeah. So um, each night, two tasting menus are offered, including a vegetarian option. These menus are based entirely on what fresh ingredients the restaurant has acquired that day. And often the products come from boutique purveyors. Uh, dinners can last up to three hours and cost more than $300, which sounds like like cheap to me. Like, don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm spending $300 on my yeah. dinners every so often. But like for something that's that like world renowned, you'd think it'd be like $1,000 a plate, you know? Yeah. But who knows? Anyway. Like their wine list is legendary. Oh, yeah. I mean, they can do literally anything they want. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Okay. Question number four. This celebrity chef has been a mainstay of the Food Network for a while, serving as a judge on many competition shows like Chopped and The Taste and hosting his own PBS travel cooking show, No Passport Required. He's also the head chef of Red Rooster in Harlem, who is this Ethiopian Swedish chef. That is Marcus Samuelson. It is Marcus Samuelson. So at 24, Marcus Samuelson became executive chef of Aquavit and soon afterwards became the youngest ever chef to receive a three-star restaurant review from the New York Times. Which is pretty crazy. I wasn't doing anything at 24. <laughs> um, least, let alone like cooking for myself. Uh, <laughs> question number five. When in New Orleans, you might want to stop by this beautiful restaurant that has been around and open since the Civil War. Yes, you heard that right. It's open 24-7 and has been since 1862. Make sure you get some chicory coffee and a nice round of beignets. What historic restaurant am I talking about? Café du Monde. It is Café du Monde. I should mention that it was closed for two months in 2005 due to damage from Hurricane Katrina. But it is back up and running. Okay, question number six. Is she a chef? Well, no, not really, but you could call her a semi-chef, I guess. Who is this polarizing celebrity chef who had a TV show where she made things that were not quite homemade? Here's a hint. She was in a long-term relationship with our governor. 
That was Sandra Lee. That was Sandra Lee. She got a lot of heat. And I was going to say something about like poor Sandra Lee. She got beat up, but she's fine. I don't feel bad for her. Yeah. She's rich as hell. Like She's, she's rich. <laughs> she's like, so rich. You know, sometimes you don't have time to make your own yeah. meringue like, frosting or, you know, there's, well, you know, what? us take fine. some shortcuts. Yeah. Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> um. Question number seven. This New York City sandwich shop is best known for their sky-high corned beef and pastrami sandwiches, but was also the location of an infamous lunch scene in When Harry Met Sally. What is the name of this deli where you wouldn't find a feline? It is Katz's Deli. It is Katz's Deli. And if you can't get to New York City to eat at Katz's Deli, no problem at all. Katz's ships worldwide. You can get, for example, the Taste of New York box, which comes with a pound of pastrami, a pound of salami, a pound of corned beef, six hot dogs, six hot dog rolls, a quart of sour pickles, a loaf of rye bread, a pound of sauerkraut, a pound of mustard, and six bagels. How much does that run you? $150. You know what? That's not as bad as I thought it would be. Right? I was expecting it to be way more. And they have like smaller packages and stuff, or you can get a t-shirt. Um, you can get a hat. You can get a t-shirt. You can get a t-shirt and you can get the, they have like the Reuben like kit, which is just like, you get like a, a oh, Reuben kit. Don't tell engineer Josh. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that was only like 70 bucks or whatever. I bet he would really like that. <laughs> All right. Question number eight. Another celebrity chef who gets a lot of flack, this cool guy is arguably the face of the Food Network. And the New York Times said that he brought an, quote, element of rowdy mass market culture to American food television. Anthony Bourdain hated him. Put some more gel in your hair and tell me who the celebrity chef is. Uh, that's the mayor of Flavortown. <laughs> you are absolutely Guy correct. Fieri. That's, that's Guy Fieri. Um, Guy Fieri is often mocked, but the man has raised... Tons of money for the homeless and needy restaurant workers during the pandemic. And he is a staunch ally to the LGBTQ community. Um, Still, I should say, in an often read New York Times review of his restaurant in Times Square, he was excoriated through a series of rhetorical (laughs) questions. And I'm going to read just a please sampling. Quote, did panic grip your soul as you stared into the whirling hypno wheel of the menu where adjectives and nouns spin in a crazy vortex when you saw the burger described as, quote, guys, Pat LaFrida custom blend, all natural Creekstone farm black Angus beef patty, LTOP, lettuce, tomato, onion and pickle, SMC, super multi cheese and a slathering of donkey sauce on garlic buttered brioche, unquote. Did your mind touch the void for a minute? The that review is horrendous. It's, it's <laughs> I mean, it's hysterical. It's very funny. Oh, it's so funny. I love it's like I love a zero star review from the New York Times food. Oh, it's delicious. It was it's very good. You should look it up. Um, maybe we'll maybe we'll link it. But it's crazy. Donkey sauce sounds fake, doesn't oh, it's it? Just, it, sounds it sounds like disgusting. It's from a sitcom. Yeah, like like what is it? A uh, stupid Nick's wing dump? Like yeah. like donkey ah, sauce is I, a dipping yes, for stupid Nick's women wing. Eat free on Tuesdays. <laughs> exactly. Stupid Nick's Wing Dump has donkey sauce. You can buy it by the quart. Like, like that's how that works. Yeah. All right. Question number nine. Let's just get it out of the way. I'm warning you ahead of time. It's a Philadelphia question. What are the names of the two rival cheesesteak outposts in Philly that also happen to be across the street from each other? That's Pat's and Gino's. It is. Uh, more specifically, Pat's King of Steaks and Gino's Steaks. So nearly a century ago, Pat Olive- Olivieri was operating a small hot dog stand in Philadelphia. One day, he decided to try something new cooked up some chopped meat in his grill, threw it on an Italian loaf, topped it with onions. 
Fast forward 36 years when Philadelphia native Joey Vento opened Gino's Steaks across the street. And according to Vento, it was he, not Pat's, that added cheese to the steak sandwich. So both shop sandwiches are fairly similar. They are strips of ribeye steak, melted cheese, and grilled onions on an Italian loaf. The main difference is the type of cut. Pat's steak is chopped. Gino's slices their steak, just as an FYI. And they slather it with cheese whiz. They slather it with cheese whiz. Or you Which can get, is I think, a cheese-flavored product. <laughs> it's a cheese-flavored mm. liquid. Oof. No, thank you. Uh, question number 10. This infamous L.A. sushi restaurant for a long time was the place to go if you wanted to see and be seen. Named after the this first name of a s- Japanese celebrity chef, it's also co-owned by Robert De Niro. What is this swanky celebrity restaurant? Man. It is four letters. Four letters. Man. <laughs> I'm going to kick myself. Aren't I? I mean, you might. I'll just, I'll just say Fuji. You're, you're not that far off. It's Nobu. Fucking fuck. <laughs> <laughs> she took off her cans. She took off her cans. She blacked out she, for a second. <laughs> she, she had to jump. <laughs> Oh, she's so mad. Yeah, it's Nobu. Sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was like... Well, see, um, I didn't know that was anybody's name. Yeah, I mean, I didn't either. That's the thing. I figured it was like an an initialism for something. Yeah. North of Butterfield or something. (laughs) North of Malibu. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Nobu. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. You did a great job anyway. You did a great job. I'm so mad. Oh, it's I'm so bad right. at myself. Right. <laughs> Don't beat yourself up. Um, so uh, just a you know, just to recap, everybody, please attend our trivia night, March eighteenth, seven p.m. EST. Uh, mag.rochester.edu. Click on events. We will be there. Ten dollars for a ticket. There will be prizes. Come and see us. It'll be so it much be a fun. Lot of fun. It'll be an hour, hour and a half. We'll get you in and out, and it'll be a great time. We'll make you laugh. We'll make you cry. Well, I don't think we're going to make you cry. Eh. Unless there's a particularly Lord sad sing, story. It'll be fine. I'll sing. I'll, <laughs> we'll have an intermission. I'll, I'll give you the full Celine Dion. It'll be great. We'll spend some plates. We'll yeah. reenact. If there's any technical difficulties um, this time around, we will reenact our trip to um, see Magic Mike live in, oh, in Las Vegas. So That's good. All right. Write that down. We're definitely going to be doing yeah. that regardless. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was so good. Uh, so yeah, yeah and check our remember. check our social meds for those links, or as Lauren, mm-hmm. Lauren said, mag.rochester.edu/events. Yes, and uh, don't forget, uh, March first starts our uh, our charity drive. Yeah, starting yesterday. Yeah, you could starting yesterday. Go to um, our T Public store. Click mm-hmm. on our links uh, that, again that are. Um, that are through our social media or the show notes here. And all of our proceeds from our merch shop and then anything that gets donated to our PayPal in the month of March, we are going to donate to the National Women's Law Center. Again, if you're not familiar with it, they fight for gender justice and courts, public policy and society, working across issues that are central to the lives of women and families, um, including women of color, LGBTQ people, and low-income women and families. So uh, we have some very... Very fun new designs in the merch shop. 
So again, even if you think you have too many podcast t-shirts, um, please consider getting some magnets or stickers or stuff for a friend or... And you know what? I would argue that some of these designs are not specifically... I mean, they are like references to like our podcast, but people are going to be able to look at the t-shirt and not be like, that doesn't make any sense. Like it's it's independently of itself, like a funny or cool or interesting thing. So that's that's my argument is that it's not so niche that it doesn't make any sense out of context. <laughs> yes. So we will absolutely, again, um, be donating all of our proceeds um, to charity in March. Yeah. So we're excited. Other so, thing, uh, Lauren has a book coming out. Oh, yeah. I've got a book coming out on March 23rd. It's called 500 Patterns. Uh, check it out. It's going to be great. It's a great reference book. Great for artists. Great for designers. Great for fashion people. It's just like a cool history slash design book about um, fabric patterns. So, uh, Oh, the other March thing is um, if you listen to our friend J.P. Adams's podcast, The Geek Bracket, um, perhaps you'll run into some categories that were written oh, yeah. by uh, the two of us this month. Yeah. So um, be sure to show him some love. Check out The Geek Bracket and um, stay tuned for more information forthcoming from us yes. about our participation about in The Geek Bracket. <laughs> Uh, so after all of that, did, did we forget anything else? That was, yeah, that was everything. some good housekeeping. Yeah. We got a lot of cool stuff coming up, guys. We're excited. We hope you're excited. Uh, check us out. Uh, we'll be posting all of that on our social media. at Misinfopod at, on Twitter and Misinformation, colon, a trivia podcast on Facebook, uh, and follow us there. So thanks so much for listening, you guys. We will catch you next time. Goodbye. Bye.